0: Chapter 18, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 18, Part 2. The Government's Non-Political Work. An important work done by the United States Army is the improvement of rivers and harbors. Here again, under Republican institutions, the profession of arms has been turned to noble account. To do battle with shoals and snags would be considered poor work for the Burnabys and Hobarts of Britain. But in the Republic, it has ever been held that to save life, is a higher function than to destroy it. Great America's army, no larger than that of insignificant Romania, is set to battle with nature, not with patriotic barbarians defending their own land. In the signal service, in the improvement of rivers and harbors, in the surveys of Western territories, the Republic finds for her soldiers work which, while injuring no nation, brings them honor and the country security and comfort. So extensive is the work done by the Little Army of the Republic that in this Division of Rivers and Harbors improvements alone, the year's report covers over 300 pages. Upward of a $100 million have been spent by the Engineer Corps on rivers and harbors since the beginning of the government, and the present annual appropriation for this purpose is still very large. The Lighthouse Board, a division of the Treasury Department, has also done much important work in a like direction. It has control of 900 lighthouses and light ships, a thousand beacon lights on western rivers, and more than 4000 buoys fog signals and other minor aids to navigation it employs 2500 lightkeepers crews of light ships etc here again american ingenuity is conspicuous many dangerous reefs are marked by a whistling buoy which can be heard more than 15 miles the rougher the sea the louder this automatic siren sends out its warning voice. This Yankee notion has been adopted by Europe. Still tending to the facilitation of commerce is the Coast Survey, a division which has supplemented its regular function by much special scientific work. It has originated methods of determining longitude, explored the Gulf Stream, Solved the problem of tides in the Gulf of Mexico, where only one tide occurs in 24 hours. Studied the laws governing tidal currents and the best methods of controlling them so as to aid navigation by deepening channels. And achieved many other valuable results. The International Fisheries Exhibitions in London and Berlin have given a European renown to the work of the United States Fish Commission. At the closing of the London exhibition, the Prince of Wales stated that, In many things pertaining to the fisheries, England is far behind the United States. And Professor Huxley has expressed his belief that no nation has comprehended the question of dealing with fish in so thorough, excellent, and scientific a spirit as that of the United States. The Reverend W.S. Locke Sherma of Newland, England, has made a trite comparison. At the Paris exhibition, he considered Europe as a man in full vigor, Asia as a decrepit old man, America as a boy, Australia as a baby. In the present fishery exhibition, the case was different. America was the gem of the exhibition. That these economums were justified is proved by the fact that at London, the United States exhibit secured 50 gold medals, 47 of silver, 30 of bronze, and 24 diplomas. At the Berlin exhibition, America again headed the list securing six gold medals out of ten. No wonder Europeans are astonished. If there be, wrote in 1879 Sir Rose Price, author of The Two Americas, any race of people who exhibit more shrewdness than others in their ability to grasp and manipulate the apparently indistinct elements of what may lead to a commercial success, or be of ultimate benefit to their nation, those people are the Americans. No government throws away less money in useless expenditures, and no representative assembly more narrowly criticizes waste, yet the Americans subsidize considerable sums of their national revenue for the purpose of restocking the rivers of the eastern states by artificial culture and, with praiseworthy consideration, their government supports several ably-conducted establishments from which fish ova are distributed, gratis, to all those who choose to apply. The very railroads assist this enterprise, and some, by moderating their tariff, and others, by generously conveying the ova free of charge, Give every possible encouragement to what their common sense tells them must lead to so much national good. To expect an English government to exhibit the same amount of foresight, or to practice a similar generosity, would be to credit them with virtues which have yet to be developed. The American example, however, should not be lost sight of. The extent of the operations of the Fish Commission can only be barely indicated here. One fact alone shows the gigantic nature of its operations. It has planted German carp in 30,000 separate bodies of water, distributed through all the states and territories in the Union. The American Navy adds to its numerous non-combatant functions the principal astronomical work done in the United States. It daily gives to every important city the correct time, and furnishes some data for the government publication The Nautical Almanac. The Naval Observatory has acquired a just celebrity by its discovery of the satellites of Mars. The Patent Office and Museum is another important division of the government at Washington. Here are many thousand models of inventions of every possible kind. The list contains over 400 different patents of a nut lock. The policy of the republic is to make the patent law the encouragement of inventors and not the means of revenue with such good results that more than 300,000 patents have been issued since 1836. Last year, the total patents issued exceeded 24,000, nearly 80% more than in 1880. Forty years ago, the average number of patents issued annually did not exceed five or six hundred. If one wishes to realize the extent and versatility of the American inventor, it is needful to visit the enormous museum at the patent office. Miles of shelves and cases are filled with models, while acres of drawings and designs adorn the walls or lie hidden away in drawers. English visitors are usually greatly impressed with what they see there. Herbert Spencer could not withhold his admiration. He says, The enormous museum of patents which I saw in Washington is significant of the attention paid to inventors' claims, and the nation profits immensely from having, in this direction, though not in others, recognized property in mental products, beyond question, in respect of mechanical appliances, The Americans are ahead of all nations. One of the most important factors in the diffusion of knowledge among men is found in the system of international exchange carried on by the Smithsonian Institution. Originally intended for the distribution of its own publications, the institution, by degrees, extended its privileges to learned societies of Both hemispheres, and at present it forms a medium of scientific intercourse between about 700 home institutions and 4,000 establishments distributed over all parts of the inhabited globe. The publications of any learned society in the world, whether in Japan, Norway, or California, if sent to Washington, will be distributed throughout the world without cost to the sender. In 1885, about 80,000 packages of books were thus sent from the Smithsonian Institution, containing in some cases its own publications, in others United States Blue Books, or the transactions of various learned societies in America and elsewhere. Many railway and steamship lines carry these packages gratuitously. In this work, the Smithsonian Institution stands alone. It is probably the most effective means of diffusing knowledge ever attempted, for it circulates to the ends of the world, the knowledge which, put into volumes of transactions and blue books, has hitherto been relegated to the shelves of public libraries. The official publications of the results of these bureaus are so numerous that the United States government is the largest printer and publisher in the world. In the Book of Estimates for the next fiscal year just sent to Congress, $1,380,000 276,000 pounds, is asked for wages alone. There are on the payroll 400 compositors. 50 proofreaders are constantly employed, besides 115 press feeders and 34 ruling machine feeders. The estimates call for 100,000 reams of printing paper or 48 million sheets, equal to 768 million pages. Of the annual report of the Commissioner of Agriculture, 300,000 copies are distributed. The reports of the Geological Survey, the Bureau of Ethnology, the reports of the Commission of Fish and Fisheries, the bulletins of the National Museum, and hundreds of other documents and reports are sent free and postage paid almost to everybody or anybody. For the preparation of this chapter, more than seventy separate government publications were obtained, the whole forming a perfect encyclopedia of governmental methods and results, of progress in art, science, and material resources. And this little library did not cost its collector a cent. Indeed, in some instances, the books were sent free from Washington to New York. Such liberality is unparalleled. The republic is certainly no-niggard. Much other extra-governmental work is done either by the government, or, as in the case of the Smithsonian Institution, under its direction. But further details are not called for here. However opinions may differ as to the propriety of a government engaging in every kind of non-governmental work, there can be no difference of opinion as to the excellent methods and important results of these bureaus in Washington. Most of them are models of equipment and method. Of the hundreds of thousands of packages sent out by Mr. Boehmer of the Smithsonian Institution, not one has been lost. These offices are outside the influence of politics and run on from year to year as freely and frictionless as if political parties were as distant as the satellites of Mars or as deep down in the sea as the protoplasmal jellyfish, about which these men of scientific light and leading write and print monologues at the public expense. Another fact elicited is that American progress is not limited to increasing crops or growing herds. In the higher domain of mind, in the alleviation of suffering, in the saving of life, in the facilitation of commerce, in the exploration of the world and the universe, in everything which tends to give life breadth as well as length, to make it more complete and more worth living, the republic has contributed a very large quota. This high estimate of the value of the government bureaus has often been concurred in by foreigners. More than one celebrated Englishman has lamented to me that his country should be so far behind in similar work. It is the cue of the ruling classes of Europe to misrepresent the government of the democracy. They would have the people believe that it is weak, corrupt, and inefficient, but those who examine the subject carefully know it to be surprisingly strong pure, efficient, and marvelously able. In none of the departments named in this chapter have politics the slightest influence. No politician could be found willing to apply any test but the suitability of the man for the work to be performed. These departments are generally under the control of permanent army and navy officers who, I think my readers will not fail to note, are put by the Republic to much higher uses than the performance of their professional duties. If we leave the general work performed under governmental control and consider what the people do for themselves, we are even more strongly impressed than ever by their extraordinary power of administration. Take the City Electrical Service as an illustration. Police officers, fire engine houses, hotels, cab stands, railway stations, banks, offices, and private houses are in direct electrical communication and telephonic communication is rapidly becoming no less general. The American Fire Department again is admittedly the best known. The horses are trained to rush out of their stalls into the shafts at the sound of the alarm. A single motion causes the harness to fall upon their backs. The men slide down posts from their bedrooms to the stable floor to economize time. The ambulance corps is unknown beyond the Republic. Its headquarters are at the principal hospitals. Electric communication apprises the attendant of an accident, as in the case of the fire engine. The ambulance, with its soft bed in charge of two surgeons, is instantly dashing through the streets, sounding its bell which notifies every vehicle to turn out of its path. In a short time, the injured is lying upon a bed under charge of competent surgeons, and is conveyed as rapidly as possible to the hospital. London physicians who see this American plan never fail to lament that even London has not yet attempted to produce any organization of like humane character. This remarkable talent for organization which the American people possess probably was never more clearly displayed than in the sanitary and Christian commissions instituted by private citizens during the Civil War. The military rations of the government, compared to those of any other government, are, to say the least, exceedingly liberal, all well enough for professional soldiers, but for the patriotic volunteer who went forth from his home to defend the Union as a duty That was quite another matter. Nothing was too good for him. The people demanded that as far as possible every luxury should be his, and to provide this, committees were appointed in the cities and contributions solicited. The movement resulted in the two general organizations named above, which distributed more than twenty five million dollars. Five million pounds worth of extra supplies among the soldiers during the struggle. The collection, transportation, and distribution of these supplies, which embraced everything from easy chairs for the wounded to delicacies for the sick, were admirably performed. Bret Hart gives a poetic description of the enthusiastic reception accorded by the troops to the wagons of the Commission as they pushed to the front, filled with the tender offerings of a grateful people. How are you, sanitary? Down the picket-guarded lane rolled the comfort-laden wane, cheered by shouts that shook the plain, soldier-like and merry. Phrases such as camps may teach, saber-cuts of Saxon speech, such as bully, them's the peach, Wade in, sanitary right and left the caissons drew as the car went lumbering through quick succeeding in review squadrons military sunburnt men with beards like freeze smooth-faced boys and cries like these u.s sancom that's the cheese pass in sanitary in such cheer it struggled on till the battle front was won Then the car, its journey done, low, was stationary. And where bullets whistling fly came the sadder, fainter cry, Help us, brothers, ere we die, save us, sanitary. Such the work, the phantom flies, wrapped in battle clouds that rise, But the brave, whose dying eyes, veiled and visionary, See the jasper gates swung wide. See the parted throng outside. Here's the voice to those who ride. Pass in, sanitary. But while these supplies were pushed forward to the front, the attentions bestowed upon regiments passing to and from different fields of action were not less characteristic. I was then superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railway at Pittsburgh, through which perhaps more troops passed than through any other city. Society there determined that every regiment should be fed. Banqueted would be nearer the correct word. No hungry volunteer should ever pass through that city without being made to feel that a grateful people wished to do him honor. This being resolved upon, the young ladies, the daughters of the rich men, the millionaires, resolved that by no menial's hands, should the defenders of their country be fed, they would organize and divide the duty among themselves, and with their own hands serve the men. The city hall was placed at their disposal, tables and cooking arrangements provided, and the work began. Every night, the list of ladies and gentlemen subject to call during that night was posted in the hall. It mattered not at what hour a regiment or detachment of troops was to arrive. A telegram from my office apprised the city hall. The men on duty went the rounds, one, two, three, or four o'clock in the morning, as the case might be, and one after another of the ladies were called and escorted through the darkness to the hall. One of the sights of my life, I can scarcely recall the scene without my eyes filling with tears even today, was to see a regiment of bronzed men, such splendid fellows as unlike professional cutthroats, as black is unlike white, to see them marched into the hall, seated at tables loaded with the finest food, and then to witness their amazement as it dawned upon them, which of course it soon did, that the young women serving were not paid servants, but the darlings of society who had risen in the night, And come forth to do them this honor. The meal ended, the colonel rose and asked for three cheers for the Pittsburgh committee. Imagine how the boys in blue responded. But when, as was usually the case, there seemed something still lacking, some irrepressible longing which must find vent, and someone from the ranks called out, Three cheers and a tiger! For the young ladies of Pittsburgh. I hear their yell yet. I have seen enthusiastic crowds and heard ringing cheers, but of all the outbursts I ever heard, that of the bronzed veterans in honor of the young ladies of Pittsburgh takes the palm. And mark you, men so treated went to the front determined to fight as they cheered. How could they fail? when the women of the land of their love came forth and said, Night or day, we are proud to be your servants. 664,000 troops were fed in Pittsburgh in the manner I have described. The funds were always forthcoming, and at one fair held in the city for the sanitary committee, $300,000 were netted, 60,000 pounds. The age of miracles may have passed. Matthew Arnold is authority for the statement that the case is closed against them. But to all those who extol the past and dwell upon its heroes and heroines, intimating that our own age is less heroic than some age which has preceded it, let us make answer that for one true hero who existed in any age, A hundred surround us today. And as for heroines, the world has scarcely ever known what one was until the present age. Women didn't know enough, as a rule, to be heroic until America educated her properly. There are a thousand heroines in the world today, for every one any preceding age has produced. I thought Twenty odd years ago, and I am still of opinion, that there were more heroic young ladies in Pittsburgh alone than the whole world could have produced not so very long ago, and Pittsburgh was but one of many cities equally stirred to its depths. I have seen the American people, young, middle aged, and old, men and women, Democrat and Republican, touched upon the vital chord, and have heard and felt the response. Let no monarchical enemy of Americans, and all monarchists are her enemies, ever again flatter himself that the unity of the Republic does not command at all times the lives, the fortunes, and the sacred honor of the American people. When the Americans determined to hold a centennial exhibition, they went to work at it in the same business fashion. Not a governmental official was called upon. They organized in Philadelphia, and the result was that not only was the display the best ever made in any country, according to the judgment of the foreign visitors, but the exhibition was visited by more people than ever before visited an exhibition. The facilities for transportation were such that the millions were moved, on time and without accident, and, more marvelous than all else, the centennial was so managed that it paid all expenses. An advance made by the government was repaid in full, The government had nothing to do with the management. It was exclusively an affair of the people and conducted throughout by them. This universal self-dependence is manifest everywhere and in everything. I stood with Archibald Forbes on the State Department steamer at Yorktown, Virginia, when the centennial anniversary of the surrender of Cornwallis was celebrated. We saw the disembarkation of some 30,000 militia troops and a grand review. Mr. Forbes remarked, What surprises me more than anything I have seen today is the absence of a body of officials to take charge of the masses and assign them to places, etc. Every American seems to understand just where he is to go, what he is to do, and how best to do it. And then he quietly goes and does it, and all comes out successfully. There is nothing like this in Europe. Such is the universal testimony of competent foreign observers. The cause of this self-governing capacity lies in the fact that from his earliest youth, the Republican feels himself a man he is called upon to participate in the management of the local affairs of his township, county, or city, or in his relations with his fellows in his church, trades union, cooperative store, or reading room, or even in his musical or dramatic society, baseball, cricket, or boating club. Everywhere, he is ushered into a democratic system of government in which he stands upon an equal footing with his fellows, and in which he feels himself bound to exercise the rights of a citizen. Those with talent for management naturally rise to command in their small circles, and upon great public occasions, when thousands of such circles are massed, the orderly habits prevailing in each circle Render possible the easy and proper management of the vast crowd. We can confidently claim for the democracy that it produces a people self-reliant beyond all others. A people who depend less upon governmental aid and more upon themselves in all the complex relations of society than any people hitherto known. At the same time, their individual talent for organization and administration has been so concentrated as to produce through official channels various departments of universal benefit to the commonwealth, none of which have ever been equaled and some of which have never even been attempted under monarchical government. We look in vain throughout the world for such beneficent organizations connected with the government of any country, as those described in this chapter. So far, therefore, from the government of the people falling behind the government of a class in the art of government, we are amazed at the contrast presented between the old form and the new in favor of the new. The truth is, that the monarchical form lacks the vigor and elasticity necessary to cope with the Republican in any department of government whatever. End of chapter 18, The Government's Non-Political Work.